You're listening to the One Small Bite Podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I have built a successful nutrition practice helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this. Hola, hola, hola. Welcome back, amigos, to the One Small Bite Podcast. This is the podcast where we bring you chop the diet mentality approaches that help us build a healthier relationship to food and to your body so we can enjoy food again so we are not driven by diet culture fat phobia and weight stigma that is dominating the way we choose to live so in today's episode i bring back ashley rorig registered dietitian nutritionist certified eating disorders dietitian certified intuitive eating counselor, and student of the Embodied Recovery Institute. She works with a nutrition practice in North Charlotte, North Carolina, called Second Breakfast Nutrition. You heard her in part one. She is going today talk to us about the second part of our conversation, which includes identifying common eating disorders in people with type 2 diabetes, And it's interesting because we're going to talk about various areas of diagnosis that typically is part of the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So I'm really excited because we're going to talk about various areas like atypical anorexia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and what all of that really means in light of people that have type 2 diabetes. So listen in because I think it's really, really important to understand that a lot of us may be at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. Some of us may not even realize it. Some of us don't even know it. And there are actually a lot of us that are walking around with pre-diabetes even. And a lot of times we may not even realize that diabetes is slowly developing. And that's something that's very important. Diabetes develops in our bodies very slowly. And again, what diabetes is, is a dysregulation. It's when the body can't regulate blood sugar levels, maintain them at adequate levels, just on a regular basis. And so, diabetes then causes our blood sugar levels to go up high blood sugar levels. And so what ends up happening is we develop chronic illnesses like cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, eye disease, uh, nerve ending diseases, and we actually end up having more complications in the long term. So I'm really excited to have Ashley talk to us about discovering the disordered eating that occurs from the various 
weight stigma and diet-centered approaches that affect the way people choose to live, the way they, they eat, the way they try to lose weight, the way that the chronic weight only comes back. So I'm really excited to have her talk a little bit about that. We'll also talk about approaches that professionals as well as the individual can take to move towards having better health, right? And I think that that's really, really important. Not being healthy, but having better health. So listen in, great episode today. And I just want to add, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, what are you waiting for? <laughs> Go ahead, subscribe to the show. It gets you these episodes downloaded to your device, your podcast players, podcast player of choice without you having to do anything. Secondly, I'd love for you to leave us a review, a rating in Apple Podcasts. That really helps us get this show out to more listeners. And of course, by doing so, helping more people. Okay, without further ado, let's get this episode rolling. Here we go. Um, let, let's talk about what happens when people diet, because I like this diet experience that you're talking about here. Take us through what happens when people diet, if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's this, you know, there's, there's some kind of trigger that occurs and maybe it's constant of, I am not okay in my body. Mm -hmm. My food isn't right. I'm not right. And, and I, and I have to get smaller. I have mm -hmm. to get smaller. Right. And so there's then, or even if it's not, um, even if it's not, I have to get smaller, I have to eat healthier. I have to mm -hmm. be healthier. I have to be better. I have to achieve a certain societal ideal of what my health is supposed to be and supposed to look like. Right. Mm -hmm. So then I'm going to go out and find a diet. Okay. Well, here's one on, you know, YouTube, or here's what my doctor said, or here's an old standby that, you know, my grandmother did whatever, you know, going to start this diet. Right. Mm -hmm. And so initially it feels like a little bit of control, right? So if somebody is kind of in a fight or flight situation and they're looking for control, okay, now I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to count this, or I'm supposed to measure this, or I'm supposed to put this in this kind of ratio or, you know, whatever it is. I'm supposed to, it, um, nutrition becomes a math problem, right? I can count my way into doing the right thing. And so for a while, you know, that might feel pretty good. That might feel pretty calming to the nervous system. Okay. I have a plan. This is what I'm supposed to do. Right. But all the time that that feeling of control is happening in one part of the brain, there's also this building deprivation in another part of the brain, because another part of the brain is saying, I'm not getting enough calories or maybe I'm getting enough calories, but I'm not getting them from the right sources. Or maybe I'm getting enough calories from healthy sources, but I would really like a Klondike bar or I'm getting calories from the right sources. And once in a while I cheat and then I feel so guilty, right? So there's all this deprivation going on. So for a while, the control is better. The deprivation is lower. And then that equation changes and the effects of the deprivation kick in and we're hungry. Right. And so and so then we think, well, I'll just have a cheat day or I'll just eat on Wednesdays and then I'll get back on the wagon. You know, there's this on the wagon, off the wagon thing. And, and, and that just sort of explodes into feeling out of control, that deprivation voice, that inner mammal voice that is saying you are not supposed to be starving. Right. Then becomes louder than our ability to make nutrition a math problem and control what we eat, right? And then 
we believe we failed because whatever weight we lost, we've gained back, or maybe we didn't lose any weight, you know, whatever the case may be. And this could happen over a very short window, or it could be a longer window, depending on who the person is. But either way, the world then makes us believe that we're the failure, right? Well, I failed this diet. I couldn't stick to it. So, so often clients will say to me, well, so-and-so a diet worked. And I'll be like, well, what do you mean it worked? Well, I, well, I lost weight. Well, then what happened? Well, I couldn't stay on it. Well, why not? Well, I was starving. So is it you that failed or is it the diet that failed, right? So we're told that we that we failed. And then just as soon as we get that you failed message, here's another diet ready to say, oh, but honey, this will be the one that will work for you. And then we're back on that cycle again. And so while that's happening in our like conscious brain, there's all this stuff also happening in our unconscious brain to a lot of the things you talked about before about the stress response, because starvation is a trauma, right? So our body responds to starvation like it responds to other traumas with all those hormonal activations and chemical activations that we talked about. So the metabolism is freaking out. The brain is hungry and seeking structure and becoming maybe more OCD and more rigid and more seeking of those things. Um, Hunger signals, kind of go away because if we don't listen to them, the body says, well, I'll just use those calories for something else. And there's not enough calories coming in anyway. Um, And so then we're in this, you know, really sort of erratic state where we hear the rules, but here's what my brain wants. My brain wants some real food. My body's not telling me I'm hungry. I can't really tell when I'm full And then that cycle starts over again with, I'll just pick another diet and this time it'll work. Mm. And I think everybody who's ever been on a diet has probably experienced that cycle or some version of that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So essentially the problem is the diet or the restricting nature of diet. And that restriction is a very powerful tool that forces that autonomic or the nervous system to fight back. And it's very interesting because the stress of not eating, and I love what you said a little while ago too, it's not always just not getting enough food. You can eat a 16-ounce steak, so calorically it's all there Mm -hmm. for one meal, but it's not getting a variety of different things that the body also needs, partly to process that steak partly to digest other things in the body, allow microorganisms in our guts to do some work and to get some fuel to our brain, um, so on and so forth. So there's this restricting, not just of amount of food, but also quality or type of food. And so we end up creating a restriction, which then creates a desire to overeat. And so we have a diagnosis for that in the eating disorder world, don't we? When we have the experience of dieting, we get the... Now, you mentioned that it's an eating disorder. When when does it cross the line from a disorder eating to an eating disorder? Well, I think, you know, eating disorders are DSM-5 diagnoses. And right. dietitians don't do that diagnosis. Therapists and doctors do that diagnosis. So sometimes... Um, sometimes symptoms are severe enough that they warrant a label. 
for me as a provider who focuses on behaviors, I don't really care what the label is. I care about knowing what the behaviors are and what the impact is on the person. And looking at that on the flip side, I care about what is the state of their nervous system that is causing these behaviors to happen and how can we help them manage their nervous system with different behaviors. So sometimes I use eating disorder and disordered eating interchangeably just explain things, but it's very much of a continuum and I'm very much focused on what is the impact of this reality on the life of the person? Yeah, so it's more or less active behaviors that the person is engaged with. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about, so this uh, restriction binging cycle too. Um, I want to get to what you're saying, but can you talk about sort of these bullets here where you're talking about when you have the lived experience plus the dieting, you have the eating disorder, you've already mentioned a lot of them and you got the restricting and then you have the overeating and that's a cycle. Mm-hmm. And then the person can end up developing what's considered a DSM-5, right? Mm-hmm. Which is um, BED, binge eating, excuse me, binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what you mean. I'm sorry, you're going to say something. Go ahead. No, no, that's okay. No, I think um, you're right. I mean, I think sometimes the behaviors are distressing enough that even if they're not at the point where some something might be diagnosed as an eating disorder, it is still stressful. Right. Enough. That's what I'm. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm. Yeah. That's what I'm exactly what I'm getting because what yeah. you're getting to here is I'm just going to jump ahead. What you're getting to here is this concept of this atypical anorexia. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I don't love the term atypical because no. yeah <laughs> you, we're you working on that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but um, I I think it's so interesting because you have someone who's still I mean they're worried about their weight the the, the body image issue is there which is part of the DSM five criteria for anorexia right but it's atypical because the body's BMI the person's BMI is 32 or 36 or 35. Right. Right. And that's one thing. The other thing too, is it might be a black woman mm-hmm. or it might right. be a Latinx person. Right. Uh, and so we don't, again, we don't associate the diagnosis and this is where the, the DSM five can also be racist to some extent. Oh, it ex- yeah. It excludes a population just, just from the BMI criteria here. And so this is why I, I wanted you to touch on, Disorder eating versus eating disorder. There's a very blurred line here. Am, am I guessing that that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the atypical anorexia thing. You're right. I mean, atypical is a problematic term because it implies that there is atypical. Yes. <laughs> there is atypical, right? Yes. But it also um, implies that it's unusual. Right. And it's not unusual. Right. I mean, or the the worst part is the person's unnormal or not normal. Right, right. Yeah. And they've been told that their whole lives because they're in a large right. that stupid diagnosis name just, just makes all of that worse. You know, I, but I would say the vast majority of my clients who are malnourished, starving, underfed, are in larger bodies, not the typical thin white female emaciated look that to a point society praises and loves, right? But then all of a sudden looks like anorexia. So yeah. the vast majority of my clients do not look like that. 
and and have and have never looked like that. And and because of that, and that's where we get to the misdiagnosis and misdiagnosis, right? People with atypical anorexia are often diagnosed with binge eating disorder because when we look at someone who's larger, we assume well they're you know they must be eating more, so they must be they must be binging. I have so many clients who've come to me and been diagnosed with binge eating disorder, and and they are not binging at all. I mean, you know, and so there's, so people are incorrectly diagnosed, but then they're also not diagnosed at all because if a person in a larger body walks in a doctor's office and says, I want to lose weight. And of course they feel that way. Society makes it very hard and very uncomfortable to be in a larger body. So what's a person to do? They go to their doctor and say, I want to lose weight. And the doctor says, well, of course you do try this. Well, then this person who's already starving right, has now been validated for starving and put on a diet. And, and you know, the, the mental health impact and the suicide rate and the mortality rate of people with atypical anorexia is even higher than that people with anorexia, which is already the highest, has already the highest mortality rate of any mental health disorder besides opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's even higher in people that are larger because Nobody sees it. It mm. doesn't get diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, and 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 tying all this back to to type two diabetes too. I mean, oh, you you, know, you beat me to the punch. <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, when when a when a person who has type two diabetes, you know, goes into the doctor, well, first, and I and it's and it's not all doctors, and I'm using that term broadly. It's not just doctors that have stigma, but when they go into a provider's office. And they have the stigma of being in a larger body and they have the stigma of type two diabetes, which is perceived to be an illness that is caused by habits. It is not, but it is perceived to be that way when they have both of those things, right? Unless the doctor is really educated in weight neutral medical care and really understands the dangers of dieting, that person is likely going to be given a a carb restrictive diet. So then we have this erratic eating, which in a person without diabetes is a crisis, but the pancreas can handle it because they have a healthy pancreas, right? But in someone with type two diabetes, if the pancreas isn't producing enough insulin or if it's producing it erratically, or if insulin isn't able to enter the cells with the glucose, then we have this erratic eating restriction and then, and then eating again and restriction and compensation and all that. And the, you know, the pancreas and the, the, the poor insulin response has no way to keep up. And then we have blood sugar spikes and drops that are even more significant than if we could teach the person to eat regularly and adequately throughout the day and have adequate carbs and have them with proteins and fats and micronutrients so that they get satisfied by a variety of food and aren't constantly seeking that quick energy that they need because their blood sugar is all over. So, you know, everything I just named is something that a privileged person may have access to, but many, many people don't. And so helping people who don't have access to it, get it, or, or find the resources that are out there is huge. So when I, when I say all that and well, it's as simple as this way, I understand that it, for the vast majority of people, it is not. So, so helping folks find the, the resources to um, 
harness better overall health for themselves is, is the, is the is sort of the first thing. And then how does nutrition fit into that? Um, and, and, you know, you're talking about the people that, that sleep later and then get up and their first food is at one o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. I tell patients all the time that your body doesn't know what time it is. Your, your body can't tell time. Your food can't tell time. So whatever your daily routine is, you've got to nurse your body in that routine, right? So if you're a person who gets up at 8 a.m. and goes to bed at 11 p.m., well, then we're nourishing ourselves between 8 a.m. and 11 p.m. If you're a person who goes to bed at 3 a.m. and sleeps till noon, well, then we're nourishing ourselves from noon to 3 a.m. It doesn't matter. We've got to get enough food in the body in whatever time and on whatever schedule works for our body. And to your point, we need to feed our body regularly. I mean, it's, you know, the body's sort of an assembly line, right? And assembly lines work better when they're regular inputs, right? In, versus when there's nothing and then a whole lot. Gastrointestinal system, all that works better when there's regular input. Um, and so encouraging regular intake, right? Just to your point, however that works for that person, eating regularly throughout the day. And, and, you know, sometimes individuals feel hunger signals and can naturally do that. Other times individuals say, I don't feel any hunger signals. How am I supposed to eat regularly? Well, you know what? For now, maybe we can't rely on those hunger signals. Maybe they'll come back. Right now, maybe we need to rely on a little more structure. So having that structure. And then, you know, really helping with permission to eat. Permission to eat all foods. Permission to enjoy foods. Permission to feel full. Permission to eat for nourishing the body, but also for social and fellowship reasons. You know, permission to eat, I think, um, you know, really can uh, can not feeling that permission or feeling all the, the food rules and stigma around good food, bad food that we live with in the world can really paralyze someone from saying, OK, well, I know I need to eat regularly. I hear that. But what am I supposed to put on my plate? Right. So permission to eat understanding that we need carbohydrates for certain reasons and we need proteins and fats for certain reasons. And we need micronutrients from fruits and vegetables for certain reasons and creating balanced meals and snacks when possible. Now, again, it's a privilege thing. Not everybody has the privilege of going out and having beautifully balanced meals all the time. That's not the reality for everybody, but when it is having some balance, right? And then, you know, balanced eating isn't every single meal is perfectly balanced. It's over the course of the day. Have you eaten regularly? Have you gotten a source of nutrients over the course of a couple of days? Have you gotten nutrients from a variety of sources? So eating regularly and eating variety, right? And then, you know, the variety thing is helpful with diabetes because we want people with diabetes to have carbohydrates regularly throughout the day. We want everybody to, but, but, but also people with diabetes, right? But if all they're eating is carbohydrates, then they're trying to fill up on carbohydrates, get satisfied on carbohydrates, and then they end up eating more carbohydrates than they can handle versus if carbs are paired with some protein and some fruits and vegetables, well, then they get carbs, but they also get other nutrients. So eating regularly in the way that works for the individual's life, eating a nice variety of food, worrying less about whether it's a perfect carb or a lean protein, you know, choosing a variety of foods from the food groups, right? If the only 
carbohydrate anybody ever eats is white rice. Well, white rice isn't a bad thing, but to only eat white rice means we miss out on a lot of other things. So choosing variety from those from those food groups. And then, you know, all of this takes a lot of time and energy and mindfulness and saying, you know, when and how in my life can I give this the energy to do the planning that is required and be mindful to sit down and listen to how my body is responding and, and, and think about eating in a less judgmental way. I mean, this is, this is not something that just comes easy. And again, it's much easier in situations with privilege. So it's not just about knowing what to do and, and, and having the resources to do it, but it's about saying, I gotta, I gotta find time in my life for this because we can have all kinds of ideas about good habits, but if we don't have the time and space to implement them, then we just end up beating ourselves up and saying, well, why can't I get that done? Well, there was no time. So helping people understand how to build time in their life and space in their life to do the things that they are able to do and have the privilege of being able to do for their health. Yeah, I think that you're touching on such incredibly important approaches to working with people in the the intuitive eating and health at every size approach or uh, uh, lens, which I think is so beneficial. And I think we did a good job so far really distinguishing the old guard, which is diet culture, and that cycle that just continues. It's sort of this, the, the perfect definition of Einstein's insanity, right? Right. <laughs> We've done it a thousand times. Yes. We've been yes. doing it for several hundreds of years now, and it's not worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it hasn't worked, just mm-hmm. hasn't worked. And so, it is the definition of an insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. We yeah. have to head down this anti-diet weight-inclusive uh, path. Otherwise, we are just doomed to repeat the same things over and over again. But I do... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, that's the other thing. Uh, you know, if if an individual is doing all those things we talked about, eating regularly, eating with permission clearing time and space in their calendar to make sure they have time for the planning, having the privilege of being able to do all that. But there's this voice saying, but you must lose weight, but you must be smaller, but you must lose weight. You know, if, if weight loss is a goal, then that is going to cloud everything else that they're trying to do for their health. Right. Because they're either, passing or failing. It's not about their overall health and their overall wellness. It's about their weight, right? And so number one, the weight focus clouds our ability to to put those habits in place, right? And and number two, you know, having a bias for losing weight um, in and of itself is restrictive, right? Which leads us to lean into, I am not allowed to have an adequate amount of food I am not okay in this body. I don't deserve to be fed. So many, so many clients who have said to me, how can I possibly still be hungry if I am this size? Why am I hungry if I'm, why am I hungry if I'm fat? And and so that bias of I shouldn't be hungry because I'm not allowed to eat because if the constant focus on weight is, is where the, medical providers are going or where the individual is going, it, it clouds and overshadows all of those other things. And, you know, if you have 
10 people who come in and they all work really hard on eating more regularly and eating in a balanced way and enjoying food and all those things, they're all going to be healthier just by virtue of doing that, regardless of whether their body size changes. So helping people, and it is, it is swimming upstream, as you said a few minutes ago in this culture, it is, it is exhausting to be the one person in the family or in the workplace or whatever that is swimming upstream against all this. Yeah. Um, I often tell my clients, it's not your job to educate people on what you're doing. Yeah. And one of the, the, the single biggest things or challenges that you're going to have to work through and what you are doing is really fending off a lot of that diet culture that's just all around you constantly. And that is going to be the exhausting part of all of this because it's going to reinform the need to lose weight unnecessarily. And you're going to be tempted by that um, that gold or that you know pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It doesn't exist. It's not there, but it is very luring. You're going to see a lot of people, wow, look at the weight that I lost. And you know, we belong to these groups of people. And, and how do we uh, you know swim around all of that in, in that clutter? I want to go to something else that you 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 point out to and, and you talk about these gifts that we give our our clients. Talk to me about what those gifts are because I really love the first one, if you don't mind. I think that that yeah. really is yeah. a big piece to all this. But go ahead. Well, I you know, I talk about simplify. Simplify, yeah. simplify. Because, you know, we I talk to clients all the time about if you followed all the rules from every diet you've ever been on, there would literally be nothing left to eat. Yeah, yeah. Because this diet says don't eat this and this diet says don't eat this and this diet says don't eat this. And, you know, sometimes what a diet would encourage somebody to eat might not be harmful that, you know, eat whole foods, eat things that are healthy. You know, it's it's the what you're not allowed to eat. Right. That's, yeah. It's the problem. And so people come with all this information and, and want to know which one of these things is right. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is. None of them. None of it is right, right? <laughs> because it's all external wisdom. It's all external. Well, it's not very wise, but it's external knowledge, right? Versus what do I need from inside me, right? And so, you know, simplify. It doesn't matter if this carbohydrate is a little healthier than this one. It doesn't matter that this meat is a little healthier than this one. If we're choosing food from a variety of food groups, we're going to get some of all those things. And it's going to be okay. So trying to, you know, reduce their stress level by helping them simplify through all the food rules. And that's not to say that some things aren't more nourishing than others and more nutritious than others and that we're not doing education about that. But if somebody comes to me and I just overwhelm them more, well, that didn't help them any, right? So simplifying, just just simplifying the rules and then also helping them simplify thinking about the process, because sometimes people will say, I just, I just can't cook. I just can't get food on the table, right? What they can't do is find the time to think of what they want to eat, put it on a list, go to the grocery store, shop the list, come home, cut it up, cook it, make sure everybody in their family likes it, put it on the table and sit down to eat it. Well, of course that's overwhelming. Yes. So how can we simplify that process yeah. with 
here are five meals that my whole family likes and we're going to rotate these. Or here is a three ingredient chicken pot pie instead of a 20 ingredient chicken pot pie. Or here's, you know, a meal delivery service or some pre-made food that we can get a couple of times a week. Here's takeout that we enjoy. You know, how can we simplify the process for people so that it's not so overwhelming. Right, right, right. Very good. So really try to help with that. And and that's true in, in diabetes. That's true in diabetes too. Yeah. Um, you know, simplifying is because, because there's this whole additional level of, of complexity with that, that, that people come in carrying because of the fear associated with that. And then the second thing is just helping people reject diet culture to what, to what you've talked about. And I think, mm-hmm there's an additional layer of complexity with that with our Mm -hmm. folks with diabetes, because not only do they do all the other people out there who are dieting and all the other people out there who are concerned about that person's weight, they're also concerned about that person's diabetes. They're fearful of that person or that person's health for for themselves. And so they're saying, gosh, you really need to lose weight because we really need to get this diabetes under control because we don't want you to have all these symptoms. It comes from a place of, love and care, but it also comes from a place of fear and it comes from a place of not understanding that the solution is actually doing more harm than good. (laughs) That's the thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so helping people, you know, helping people reject that is is really important. And then, and then the last thing is just understanding the role of trauma in all of this. And, you know, we talked about the, the role of trauma and fight or flight and, and the eating behavior piece of that. There's also an additional layer of that, which is how trauma affects the digestive system, right? Mm -hmm. Because the nervous system and the Mm -hmm. digestive system run on the same pathway in the body. They're kind of parallel Mm -hmm. train tracks, right? Right. And when the nervous system is in fight or flight, so is the digestive system. Mm -hmm. When the nervous system is in freeze, so is the digestive system. Mm -hmm. And so even if the person has some, you know, knowledge and, and, and understanding about the, about trauma and what's happening to them, you know, all the symptoms of IBS and all those kinds of oddly undiagnosed, you know, GI things, so related to trauma. Yeah. And so helping people understand not only how trauma affects the way they react and respond to life and how mm-hmm. food is affected by that, but also how the GI system is affected by that can really help create an understanding for an individual about what's going on with them and help them understand why Mm. more regular intake and more variety and less chaos right around food can be really helpful, but we have to get them in a place emotionally where they're able to do that because to throw lots of good ideas at somebody who's in fight or flight or freeze. Yeah. Work. Yeah. And I love that you say that because the vast majority of clients that have digestive issues that come to see me, not the vast majority, a hundred percent are in very either high stress or there's high anxiety. And there's a combination of that as well as maybe even depression Mm -hmm. and anger issues or maybe trauma on top of all of that, that are just playing havoc on their digestive system. Because of what you just said, they're so interchanged. They're so part of of one system when you think about it. You know, it's the second brain. The gut is the second brain. Right. And then that is also a trigger of I feel my body. Yeah. Right. right. When my digestive system is uncomfortable, I feel my body. And when I'm feeling my body, I'm traumatized by that. And then it just feeds the cycle. 
Right. I have a client that's doing that's in that very same situation right now that we're talking about. And she gets digestive issues and she doesn't like what it's how it's feeling. And I'm like, your body's telling you something. Your body's telling you something. This is your other form of anxiety response. And you're this is how your body is responding to the anxiety that you're we've got to work on that anxiety. We've got to work on what's going on there. And it gets back to having a good therapist that you can team up with and being able to work on some of those areas as well. I remember several clients telling me, you know what, Dave, I think I'm going to start working more on on the my emotional because we've really touched on, on a lot of this. And every time we touch on this emotional part, I really notice how my digestive, and this goes both ways, it gets better or it gets worse. Yeah, exactly. When we're able to work through what we're going to do is uh, work through your your digestion is we're probably going to work through a lot of your emotional and yeah. that's big. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the hard thing for so many people is that is um, uncomfortable and maybe yes. painful and maybe traumatizing in the short run, but yeah. we can't do that bigger therapeutic work on an unfed brain. Right. So we have to, we have to do both and, and sitting with that short term discomfort of, my GI system is a wreck and this person is telling me to put, put food in it. And this is really uncomfortable to me. We have to sit with that to get to the place where the brain is fed enough to have the resources to create a nervous system that supports a digestive system that works better and doesn't create that discomfort. Yeah. It's all about the comfort zone, meaning that I'm going to stay here in my comfort zone and not feel this. Um, but when I'm ready to uh, make that uh, um, uh, change, I'll, I'll go ahead and make that change. And I tell them, no, that's not the way it works. You, right. you, you actually have to feel the discomfort so that you will no longer feel the discomfort. Because what you're going through right now is just this momentary um, uh, relaxation that is only because you're, <laughs> your body's probably really tired. And you need to go through that difficult part. It's the same thing with an eating disorder. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and start eating once I, you know, I get the courage. And I'm like, no, you, the, to get the courage, you have to actually go through the, the, the tunnel. You have, to, you have to face that demon because otherwise, if you don't face that demon, it's not going to go away. It's going to. And yeah. And, and when they're in that stage, they, they have to be in a, uh, treatment setting or have a treatment team that can help them process that somatically because the intervention that we're asking them to do is making their activation worse. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. Right. You know, looking at, you know, me eating disorder treatment as here, just go eat this meal plan. Doesn't matter. The person might be able to do it in a compliant sort of way in the short run, but while we're refeeding people, while we're helping them get better nourished, we have to be helping them connect to their somatic experience and be able to be in the driver's seat to some extent in that process and we're the support person. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'll tell you, a lot of people with eating disorders resist going to treatment. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Very big part. 
Well, Ashley, this is fantastic. I know that we can talk more and longer on all of this stuff, but um, I do want to be conscious of your time. I'd love for people to uh, get to know where they can find you and stuff. But before we go there, yeah. I have a, a fun question to ask you. Okay. So <laughs> this is just something that I enjoy finishing up with. But if you were stranded on a desert island and this was the final meal that you were to have, what would it be? And it could be made and cooked by whomever you would want. What would it be? Cheese. Oh, okay. <laughs> Boy, you're... A potpourri of cheese. I don't need anything to put it on. I doesn't have to go with anything. Just cheese. Nah. <laughs> Just oh cheese. It is, it is without a doubt my, my favorite, favorite thing. Oh, good. Wow. That was quick. I, that was easy. People, yeah. yeah. I, don't need, I don't need fancy. I just need cheese. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Ashley, where can people find you? So Second Breakfast Nutrition is a um, small private practice in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I practice. And we have a great website. So I would send you there to look at Second Breakfast Nutrition. You can find more information about me there. Um, and then I also have a growing Instagram presence. I'm not the greatest <laughs> social media person, but I'm working on it. Um, and that is uh, Ashley Roerig RD. And we'll put that in the show notes and you can and you can find me there. Yes, I will. Yeah, that's so funny that you talk about social media because I'm the same way. It's like, especially during the pandemic and even before that, the uh, political situation in the United States, social unrest in the United States, mm -hmm. I just... I had to step away from social media because it was just, oh, I couldn't. I really, really couldn't. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, it, you know, it's so important for those of us who are working to swim upstream. Yes. Put those messages out there. And, you know, I would say to anybody who, you know, what is, what is a good first step in this work? Cleanse your social media of things that don't serve you and yeah. speak out things that do because we can't choose what our coworker is going to say sitting next to us. We can't maybe choose what a parent is going to say. We can't choose what our friends are going to say, mm -hmm. but we can clean out that social media and, and follow people and, and, and build a community that does support what is good for us. Yeah. I greatly appreciate you for all you do and what you've provided today. This information is phenomenal. Um, you, you bring a great perspective and the work that you're doing sounds phenomenal. Um, we'll have to have you back and chat some more on some more topics. How does that sound? Thank you. I would love to do that. And I appreciate the work you're doing too. I think your podcast is great. And I'm so glad that um, that we connected. This yeah. Today, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Ashley. I'll talk well, to you thank soon. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. That was just fantastic. Thank you so much, Ashley, for those great nuggets of wisdom. And I'm sure we all got some great ways of trying to make that change, trying to, to help ourselves or others by avoiding the development of diabetes through chronic dieting and the weight stigma that we're dealing with. Stay tuned next week. I've got another special guest, uh, registered dietitian nutritionist, Nikki Estep. She is, specializes in pediatrics, in eating disorders as well, and she's going to talk to us about diabetes and um, nutrition for children as well. So we're going to get started there, and then after that, I have... Julie Brake, who is a pediatric specialist dietitian, to continue that conversation. So how do we use intuitive eating, health at every size, 
and a more weight-inclusive approach to helping people. So we don't end up continuing the same rat race, right? Doing the same thing over and over again gets us what? Insanity. Thank you, Einstein. We appreciate that. So, uh, and then listen in because I've got some more great guests coming up as well. So I'm excited to have you join us. For right now, I just want to please ask you one more time, if you get a moment, please, please, please drop us a rating, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those rates and reviews really help our show get out to more listeners, which will eventually help us with monetizing the podcast so it can help pay for the cost of doing the show. You know, remember, it takes anywhere to, from six to 10 hours just to put one show together. So quite amount of work, good amount of work put into a lot of these. And I, I really appreciate the, our staff for doing all of the hard work. I also appreciate you for listening in. So until next time, I want to remind you, signature sign off here, folks. Chop that diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Until next time, ciao. Oh, yeah.